0: Jennifer Nash moved to the US in search of a better way of life. In this episode, listen to Jennifer detail the reasons why she left Africa, what it was like getting a US visa, and how she ended up starting Arkham Brook, her PR agency. In addition to all of this, she is an advocate for social justice, which has led her to build libraries in her home country, Zambia
1: born in Zambia and nine months of sunshine and so being born there meant that I ate organic food every day. I had lots of legumes and fruit and vegetable and the fruit came from my yard, my own yard. (laughs) So I had to pluck my own mangoes and papayas and uh, had a huge diet of sweet potatoes and corn on the cob. So I couldn't complain everything organic I could think of, I had it in my own front or backyard. So fast forward, the only thing that really drove me nuts was the infrastructure. When I get got out of my own yard, getting out and doing Okay, if running your business, you have no electricity, you have no running water, you have no this and that. So the infrastructure is what drove me out of Africa. My heart still belongs to Africa. My mind still belongs there. But on the outside, I wanted more. So I moved to the US uh, in 1998 in the pursuit of happiness, of having all of that, if that if that ever happened. So I wanted to have it both ways. I wanted to have some sunshine, four seasons, four proper seasons, have a beach, but as well as have the infrastructure, right, that goes with that. Yeah. So I moved to New York in 1998 um, and started working for David's Bridal. And before that, actually, I was working as a nanny Uh, Because I couldn't get into mainstream um, work or formal work because of my paperwork. So whilst I was waiting for my paperwork to go through, I was working as a nanny in the Hamptons. um, Working for this really rich couple, hanging out on the beach, uh, seeing Mariah Carey over there and (laughs) Jerry Seinfeld (laughs) over there. Those are two real people that I saw at the beach um, when I took the kids over one summer. But that's where the romance ended. Um, as soon as I could, I was able to get into formal sector. I joined uh, David's Bridal.
0: So what was it like with the, the paperwork process? Like, what was that like? Was there a lot of kind of resistance? Or
1: All right. I'm glad you asked that. That's an amazing story. So um, I went into the U.S. with the I-94, which is the visitor's visa. And then within that, when you are in the country, because we used to be allowed six months and you could change your status within that six months. So I applied for my status to be changed so that I could be authorized to work.
2: Mm -hmm. So
1: I wanted to have work authorization. You could either get work authorization by being sponsored by your family Mm -hmm. as an uh, for me, it could have been as an au 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 pair. Or I could be sponsored if I had, had a formal job working for David's Bridal, they could pay five grand or something and gay, gay, give me a work certification, right? right.
2: Yeah, yeah. So
1: I didn't want to go either route because I didn't want to be beholden to any one employer. Yeah. I wanted to be able to choose who I worked for. That's that African
0: independent spirit. Yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> but also because I've got restless feet. <laughs> So I chose the harder route, right? So I wrote to uh, INS, I wrote to them and said, I wanted to change my status and these were my reasons. And I felt like I had everything that it takes to uh, pursue my American dream. And I had the right to pursue that. And could they change that for me? Well, I got a handwritten letter response from somebody who worked for INS, anonymous letter, saying, dear Jennifer, thank you so much for the uh, letter that you sent, that you want to change your status from, legally change your status Mm. from I-90 to whatever. But I am here to tell you, young lady, that you are better off not even writing to the INS. Just stay here. You don't even have to go through the process. I'm telling you this privately and I'm not putting my name there because once you've lived in the United States for about 10 years, you automatically become a citizen. So why are you going to go through all of this process? And chances are that they're going to deny you and deport you. So I was like, "Oh my gosh, okay." Because being a Christian to begin with and wanting to do things in the straight way, yeah, I kind of felt uncomfortable with that. But I did drop it. I just kept on renewing my I ninety five, or oh, is it I ninety four? Whatever, I can't remember. I think it's ninety four. I ninety five is a highway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know more than me. I don't. I've never lived in America, so you. I was like I ninety five, yeah, Route yes. sixty six, whatever it is. <laughs> That's what it is now.
1: it's the, uh, the, yeah, it's the I-94 visitor's visa, I think. So, yeah, so I just kept on renewing it. Every six months, I just kept on renewing it. Right. But um, Providence had it that after being in the U.S. for about two years, mm-hmm. I was able to get work certification not through David's bridal, but through another company, they actually got me the certification. And then from there onwards, every uh, consequent employer that I worked with just renewed that. And that's how I managed to stay in the US for up to 10 years on uh, job. Um, Yeah, I was just sponsored on job sponsorship.
0: Right. Okay. So what kind of work was that? Is it anywhere kind of similar to what you do now or?
1: Nothing close to what I'm doing now. Okay. So I started out in retail with David's Bridal and then I ended up in property management. Right. So I worked for a company called Chamberlain Associates. Mm. So this is a developer that, a commercial developer that bought uh, properties, different pa- uh, even uh, patches of land mm. within the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. And he developed them either built to, to suit and all he built them off plan or whatever. Then they were building all these properties. So I was the property assistant manager. That just simply means I was an assistant to the property manager. Yeah. But they had the their, their title in a certain way that they wanted it. So I worked for them uh, from 2004 to 2006. Right. And then the very first um, uh, property downturn started to happen in the US, right? Yeah. this is before we even realized that what was going to happen in 2008, 2009, but there was an over, uh, oversaturation of loans being given to the property industry. That meant that, uh, people were borrowing more than they could afford and the industry was getting into trouble, the first signs of trouble. And my, uh, my boss, then Mr. Chamberlain started selling off some of the properties and he knew he was really smart. He is really smart he knew what was going on he had insights and stuff like that so yeah. he started getting rid of some of the portfolios and that meant our entire team needed to be made redundant okay and so we were given severance pays we were given um, redundancy packages yeah. at this point in time I had met my now husband who is an Englishman yeah. um, and we were like okay so what do we do next so we we're like, okay. He was like, come and live with me in England. I was like, no way, Jose, because I haven't even met you as such because we were dating online. Okay. So I was like, first off, we need to go into my country of origin so that I really get to know that you're not a serial killer. Yeah. And then we can Fair come enough. and live.
0: You've got to make sure. I mean, nowadays, yeah, everyone exactly. meets online, but you were, what, a trendsetter if you were doing that yeah. back in 2000? 2000.
1: 2005, six, or wow. something like you're that. You're on the dialogue. Yeah, six.
0: You're on the dial I know. up,
1: we were on um uh Skype.
0: No, I mean, dial up we... internet with that, dial horrible...
1: up, yes, <laughs> yes, dial up for sure. So, yeah, so we got married that same year. So, we yeah. met in March, we got married in November that same year, and moved back to my country of origin, Zambia. Okay, and we lived there for about four years, and that's when the actual recession began to hit. Yeah, so. Excuse me. When I we went back home, we went uh, back with the vision of just going ahead and continuing what I used to do before I left for the U.S., which is bridal. Yeah, I was running a bridal uh, shop and a magazine.
2: Yeah.
1: Fast forward 2010, the recession was really, really coming to the top. Yeah, and that's when also the digital landscape was beginning to become. A force to reckon with. Yeah. So anything that was print, any wedding dresses that we all used to go to China and handpick yeah. and stock in the shops became irrelevant because anybody could order through eBay yeah. and Alibaba yeah. and get their dress shipped. Yeah. That mean, meant that if you had a brick and mortar business and the recession is hitting, you have no chance for yeah. your business to survive. Right. Yeah. So being a strategist and a visionary. I kind of like said, okay, this is it, so what next? So my husband was like, okay, we better move to England. I think it's time now to move to England because there we've got a chance of us getting into a regular job rather than us fighting with this uh, force of nature, i.e. the economy and the change of winds in the economy or the global uh, business infrastructure, so to speak, right? So we moved back to the, U, to, the, we moved to the UK for the first time for me, but for him, we, he moved back. So that's when I got back into regular employment, nine to five. I was working for Vera Wang in London.
2: Yeah, okay. The fashion brand. In
1: retail, the fashion brand, the wedding fashion brand. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I worked for them for a little bit, uh, but I got tired very quickly. I got tired of lifting up the wedding dresses and all of that. Yeah. But... To your point, before we started recording, being a person who has a big heart for social justice, being an activist and an advocate uh, for um, social justice, I kind of felt uncomfortable the day that I sold a wedding dress to this lady who was a princess from some country in Tunisia, I think. Right. She paid 80,000 pounds. Yeah. For three wedding dresses plus her mom's outfit, yeah. For a, she was going to have a wedding spreading over uh, a week or, or two weeks.
2: Yeah.
1: It didn't sit well with my soul. Right. I could not understand how a person could spend eighty thousand pounds British sterling pounds to just have a wedding. In, and this is just for the
0: for the dresses, outfits. yeah. Something you're gonna dresses. wear once. And so she had
1: three dresses. Yes, yeah. the main event one in Paris and the other one in bah- Bahrain. That's yeah. where she was marrying a prince.
2: Yeah,
1: and then her mother's mother of the bride outfit. Yeah, all tailor made. That's when the penny dropped. I was like, this is not real.
2: Mm.
1: For eighty thousand yeah. uh, pounds, I thought about the GDP for my country
2: yeah.
1: and the per capita per income yeah. for, for every normal person earning less than one dollar a day yeah, and yeah. how many wells that amount of money could build in Zambia. Yeah. Remember, my story is that electricity, infrastructure and water yeah. were my main reasons why, why I moved left. to the Western world, yeah. right? So it just didn't sit well with me. I was like, okay, so I tried to talk to her. I said, do you mind if after you've spent all this money, if you want to donate the wedding dresses and whatever, and I can auction them and yeah. then raise money for donating to a charity that I was passionate about that I had already established in 2006, which meant which is the HML Foundation, which builds libraries and or provides infrastructure, technology, information and technology to the underprivileged in society right
2: yeah
1: so and she said yeah why not I could do this but I think that was just face value because I think she went back and told on me to my employers
2: yeah
1: and said <laughs> so the next thing I was called and I was told that you know I wasn't fitting in I was too Americanized and um, and all sorts of uh PR uh, goobity gook language that you yeah. could uh, pull out you're of the you're not a good bag. fit
0: here oh, yeah we're, exactly we're trying to go this way you're trying to go that way I yep, think it's best exactly. if we split past yeah all that kind yep. of corporate nope. corporate jargon
1: exactly they they didn't say directly they yeah. just asked me to be they wanted to me to have a disciplinary hearing
0: ah yeah that's the um, way forward and isn't it <laughs> so
1: yeah that was the way forward so I said you know what uh thank you but no thank you I quit yeah and that's how I left. Yeah. Um, and so that that's how I left the retail industry okay. and then took back my um, my career, picked up my career back from where I'd left with Chamberlain Associates in property. So yeah. I started pursuing the property industry, got my certifications. Fast forward, I qualified um, to get the um the England and Wales qualification for property management. Yeah. So I went into that industry and started working there. Mm-hmm. And fast forward, I realized that that industry was just as bad in terms of the reputation, how you were being abused yeah. by the um, by the landlady, the the the, the, the leaseholders. Yeah. Because you manage properties for leaseholders uh, in an association or whatever property association, property management association they were very, very abusive. But fast forward, I realized that there was a lot of public relations involved in that industry that was missing. And so when I quit that industry, my job as a property manager, whilst I was waiting to decide where to go next, I got placed as a temp in an agency, a PR agency that specialized in property developers. And it was run and managed by these two awesome women, very powerful women yeah. that had been doing it for 25 years. I mm. was inspired. I was like, PR. So when I looked back to my career trajectory, I realized that all along I had done something similar to what uh, they were doing in yeah. terms of public relations, except that they called it stakeholder engagement. Yeah. Or, and community, sorry, st- they call it, called it community Uh, engagement and stakeholder communications which just translates to public relations right what
0: what is public relations like if you could give like a brief summary of of what what that type of work is
1: so public relations pretty much means that representing uh clients in in good light and enhancing their visibility and their brand voice yeah. so that the public gets to know and understand what they're all about.
2: right?
1: It means that you want to enhance whatever good sides that brand has, let's say, rep- reputation-wise in terms of their products or the service delivery that they have. Right. So you just speak out and uh, represent them in good light so that they are known and heard yeah. and trusted. So the five main heuristics of public relations uh, that you want your brand to be trusted, yeah. to be known, to be talked about, to be remembered. The fifth one is to be loved, which is kind of like liked and loved. Yeah, it's pretty much the same. But you can love someone, but you can't you don't like them, <laughs> I guess.
0: Uh, that makes so, sense. sense. That would explain my whole so, love yeah. life.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So those are the main uh, verticals about why we do public relations. So you want to keep, to be remembered, you want to keep the brand front of mind for for the brand. So sometimes we do PR campaigns just for people to know that the brand exists. So we want to increase their share of voice and share of market. Those are the measurements why we'll do a PR campaign using the, to be known vertical. And then, you know, you want to be trusted. So you kind of present to the public things like maybe case studies and or you create uh, things like social corporate social responsibility programs but also you enter the brand into awards yes yeah. for them to be recog- recognized in that industry as experts in their field right yeah so for example coca-cola would do something like a cleanup thing for the, the oceans for plastics yeah that's all part of pr yeah. right it's just to be seen and trusted that they're very responsible for an individual entrepreneur for example they could do something like maybe clean up the streets of their own local community and they use that as a PR moment to be seen and trusted and so on and so forth so then to be loved you want to have some sort of uh, social proof you kind of like maybe give uh, promote or give away something yeah. to the community that is tangible mm. so whereas the other one was about you know giving back to society as a whole but you could also give something that is more tangible.
0: And all of that kind of stuff you just spoke about there, the five uh, heretics of of PR, did you learn Mm -hmm. that while you were doing that internship with these two ladies? Or was that something you learned kind of once you'd left that place? Like, I'm just trying to gauge. Oh,
1: that's fine. Uh, So fast forward after that, I started my own agency in 2015, right? Uh, So that's how I left the nine to five uh, industry uh, workplace. But fast forward, after 2015, I was operating as um, an agency, as a consultant, uh, going on the kind of experience that I had already garnered either from my uh, ex-employers or from just personal experience from other jobs because most of the skills are transferable. But in 2017, I decided at 48, I was like, I want to, uh, to be authentic yeah. and I want to have credentials that I am actually a PR consultant. Yeah. So I enrolled back into uni right. and I did a PR and, adverti- a PR and advertising degree yeah. and graduated last year. Oh, nice. So, <laughs> so I literally went back to uni, yeah. 30 years older than my peers in my classroom. I was the oldest. Yeah. <laughs> and so graduated top of my class last year.
0: You tend to find that with mature students because I went back to uni at um, the age of 23 just because I was going from finance into creative work. And I, I wanted something to occupy my time while I built my business in the background. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as an older person, I think you kind of you're not focused on the whole drink relationship side of things, whatever. You're just in there like, is this the work? How do I get mm-hmm. the top mark? You yep. you do. You go. You do it. You go back to your lecture and you speak. And they go, oh, improve this. And you keep doing that. and Keep doing that until you get to, to the grade you want, which is obviously a first. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I yeah. just tend to find that I don't think people should go to university at 18 unless they're mentally ready for it. Because with my I'm first with degree. You. I wasn't mentally ready for it. I yep. wasted a lot of time. But yep. with this one, and considering this is the less serious one, I was more mm-hmm. dialed in. I was more focused. I wanted to do the essays early and, and get yep. the feedback early. And I I, te- mm-hmm. I definitely, agree, you know, I don't think people should feel so much pressure to go to university so early. And you have yep. because it is a, a thing of courage as well to go back to uni when you are a mature student. Because some people yep. will talk themselves out of it and go, oh, what online courses can I do in this, that, and whatever, it's like, <laughs> For instant kind of social proof and for people Mm -hmm. to go, yes, I trust this person to work for me, you need a degree. It's unfortunate, Mm -hmm. it's expensive, but I feel like Mm -hmm. if you do the right type of degree, especially if you're transitioning into a direct path, they pay Mm for themselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely does. Absolutely. I completely agree 100 percent because, you know, like I did my first associate degree was English as a second language. So I did English in America. Yeah, Uh, I went to college for it. I did um, an associate degree, but that just got me into copywriting, uh, copy editing and understanding North American English. Right. Yeah. Uh, but that wasn't really anything. It it got me jobs of being a, an executive assistant and, you know, like y- basic jobs. It got you and by. it couldn't. Exactly. So I felt like, you know what, I need to pursue this. In fact, what happened was like the time I met my husband, I was just, just got accepted to go to UC Berkeley. Yeah. And uh, then we decided to get married and he couldn't come and live in the US because of the paperwork. Yeah. Um I couldn't sponsor him because I was on sports work certification yeah. and my company was making us redundant. Yeah. So I it meant that I couldn't sponsor him to live in the US, even though I could have continued living there yeah. as a student. Uh, so, but love code and I chose love. So <laughs> I abandoned my uh, intention to go to university to yeah. st- to do my studies. And at that time, it was completely different. I was going to pursue studies in um, city planning right. and stuff like that. Because you were still heavy in,
0: in the real estate type stuff. In
1: the real estate, exactly, but exactly. You
0: went, You was going in this direction. You were going, okay, working in bridal, going to work in, in property. <laughs> then you went back to yeah. Zambia. And then you're like, yeah. right, back to bridal. But this time I'm at the yeah. top of the tree. I own the company, yeah. I'm sourcing this, I'm doing this. Yeah. Then you was like, right, forget Zambia because of the recession. Let's go to England yeah. where everything's always great and everything's always working out. <laughs> <up. laughs> Do you know if what I mean? Think. Free healthcare. I'm just, I'm just being yeah. silly. Do you know what I <laughs> mean? Free healthcare. And you, so you went back to property. No, mm-hmm. back, back to property, back to bridal, into yeah. PR, into yeah. university. And then, so now yeah. you're in the position you're at now, where you've got all these years of experience in various different places. So, where mm-hmm. does that come into Ark? Is it Arks and Brooks or Ark and Brooks?
1: Ark and Brook. Yeah. So it's Ak and Brooks. So that's a very, very good question. I'm glad that you asked that. So it makes me then a very versatile person. Yeah. So because my clients come from different industries and different perspectives, that means I'm able to understand different industries, Yeah. Uh, not just the ones that are coming from real estate. If I had to say who is my lighthouse client, my yeah. North Star client avatar, it would be somebody who is a, a Property developer because I understand that industry very well. But having said that, I've got a lot of transferable skills that come from retail, that come from, you know, property uh, and also fintech and stuff like that. So Ackenbrook right now, it's a PR agency, an integrated uh, PR agency where we provide uh, visibility uh, strategies for entrepreneurs. I've niched just into entrepreneurs and gone further by niching that into just female entrepreneurs right so my point my superpowers is to enhance uh, visibility for female entrepreneurs so that they get heard and seen as Mm. experts in their field and that helps them to gain and earn credible visibility uh, with authorities so i help them Uh, through social media and mainstream um, uh, visibility strategies. So we manage um, the entire social marketing suite, Mm. but we also get them uh, heard and seen by journalists in mainstream media. So those are the types of people, uh, entrepreneurs that I'm working with, um, because my vision has always been that female entrepreneurs uh, hardly ever get seen and recognized as experts, yeah. as thought leaders right. to begin with. They are marginalized and they're often underrepresented. Yeah. One, because they are female. Yeah. And then two, because there's not enough uh, female entrepreneurs anyway. Yeah. So, you know, move over uh, male entrepreneurs, they get seen and heard in Forbes magazine, in Financial Times, they get uh, on New York Times and stuff like that. Yeah. But it takes a lot of doing for a woman to actually get that seat at the table. And why so, do you think that is? Of course, we've got all this genderized role. We've got all these gender biases going on yeah. that are in net in our society. I mean, yeah. there's, there's the list goes on why women get 10% or 10 times less than a man in the same capacity, right? Yeah. It's the same always uh, the, the, um, the construction, the way our society has been constructed, yeah. that women are, are worth less yeah. for whatever situation. They shouldn't be heard as much as a man. Women should just be seen and not heard. Yeah. You know, Women should just stay at home and not be trying to be an entrepreneur. Mm. Women should just be paid less money because they don't deserve it because they don't put in as much as a man should. All of those biases, inherent biases, or um a, a structure in imbalances and biases that have been put in place by, guess who? Men, yeah. of course. <laughs> I, and
0: I tend to find personally, female-led or female-founded companies actually tend to operate better. There's a lot less drama going on inside them. Employees tend to be happier.
1: Yeah, and to your point, of course, it's the norms are such that, you know, society, like I said earlier on, is like, we've been uh, nurtured and uh, nurtured um, to, to think that way. Um, and sometimes it's not even the men that impose that. I think that sometimes women themselves take second place because they feel that they don't deserve it. So they tend to have an imposter syndrome. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to work with most of the women to get over that, go from imposter uh, imposter syndrome girl to a poster girl. So yeah. part of the offering that I have for my clients is get them to get out of their own ways and, and know that they can be the poster girl of their own brand. And, um, and yeah, to, to, to your point as well, and to, to answer your question is that, you know, the people that I'm working with are actually, 50, let me say 45 plus women that maybe they're just challenged with technology in terms of when it comes to social media. Because that's one of the main reasons earlier on I mentioned that I had to go back to university to end my credentials. Because I realized that even though I had my earned experience, abilities, and skills to do public relations, yeah. I I had it in a traditional way. Yeah. So I needed to add credentials for the digital space because things had since changed yeah, and I needed definitely. to understand how to read the analytics for social media. I needed how to do social listening. I needed how to to, uh, to understand the trends and how to even post uh, the back end of how social media works right. for me to be able to, trans- to translate the di- digital landscape to my clients mm-hmm. so t- to continue the thought of who is the ideal client that I'm working with at Akron Brook um are 40 to maybe six 40 to 60 year old yeah. entrepreneurs that perhaps have uh started their businesses over 40 yeah they were working in a nine to five job yeah And they got to a point where they got fed up Mm. and decided to set up their own businesses. So they were C suite executives that had a huge team behind them doing all the branding, the PR, and stuff like that. Now they are on their own, Mm -hmm. and suddenly they have to do their own PR. Mm. Suddenly they have to do their own branding and managing of their social media visibility strategies. So this is where I come in to bridge that gap Mm -hmm. because. They can't go to a traditional uh, PR agency yeah. be, f- 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 to pay those uh, insane retainer prices, yeah. right?
0: That's that's the thing with with bigger with bigger companies. There is that kind of assuredness of, oh, yes, I know what, the, what I'm going to get here. But it's like, yeah, but you're also paying for that massive building you see in Central London. Not you know not in full, but in piecemeal. That's why the exactly. price is so high. And yeah. one one thing I've always tried to explain to people is just because you work with a, a, a individual person or a smaller brand. Doesn't mean you're getting less. If anything, you're probably getting more from that person because mm-hmm. they have a whole bunch less to worry about. You're going to be talking to maybe one, two, three people, and not a team of six people every time. And you know, it's like you said. So you're you're kind of giving a a, be- or a better option or a different option to the bigger mm-hmm. agencies.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's more hands-on. To your mm. point, it's more hands-on, and you've got twenty-four-seven access to me as your publicist, no yeah. less. Because if you work for an agency, they'll tell you, I'm not your publicist. You can't just keep on asking me questions. These are the billable hours that we've given you. Our office hours are Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 p.m. That's it. Yeah. Right. If you spoke to my clients right now, they will tell you I'm accessible via Facebook Messenger 24-7, you know, except for the times when I'm literally sleeping, You know,
2: (laughs) if you could, you would reply in your sleep.
0: But but if I could, I would reply exactly.
1: But uh, thank god for for artificial intelligence and uh, bots, I think I do reply in my sleep. So, but yeah, they have more access to me and my VIP knowledge. They've yeah. got that firsthand access to me than they would in a traditional agency. So some of the advantages they have of working with a PR agency that is at my level mm-hmm. is that they have that 100% access and 0% bureaucracy. Yeah. So that's absolutely my highest offering. So, yeah. Okay, of course.
0: And so from from what you're doing now, looking again, all the way back to where you started off. You started off in Zambia. You're now in England. You're running this PR agency. Where does the philanthropy come in and and what do you kind of you know, what do you do with your philanthropy? Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm glad you asked that question because that's a question and a topic that is so close to my heart. So how have I weaved that in? So literally just launching this year, the Global Ignite Vision Awards, right? So this is the ultimate global visibility uh, PR strategy that any entrepreneur can get. So I am launching this. It's going to be on the 22nd of October um, here in London, in Gerald's Cross. And this idea comes from the fact that I want the entrepreneurs as well to be able to be given the recognition that they deserve as experts in their field, they need to be given that platform, those accolades that they normally wouldn't get Mm. um, as an informal entrepreneur in the informal sector. That is, whereas people that are in the formal sector, they've got all these industry awards where they get uh, recognized. Remember earlier on, I talked about a brand getting those that recognition, which, kind of gives them uh, um, a stamp to say, you know, like a third party endorsement to say that they're good at what they do. Right. And that they're experts in their field where I've created the giver Awards so that entrepreneurs globally can have that same endorsement, third party endorsement. And where this actually comes uh, into segues into my uh, philanthropic work is that uh this event the proceeds of this event minus the marketing costs minus the uh, staff costs and the venue costs yeah. will benefit the HML foundation right plus 12 other charities uh that will be chosen by the judges for the event okay. so we've got 12 judges for the event that will be ch- uh choosing the nominees for each categories and then they'll finally decide who wins what. So there'll be a global entrepreneur of the year award. There'll be global entrepreneur employer of the, of the year and stuff like that. So we've got 10 categories for that. And uh, so those 12 judges will end up having their own charities of choice receiving a $2,000 donation towards their charity of choice and then whatever remains out of the pot goes to building the first ever state-of-the-art library in my native country, Zambia. Yeah. Um, because Zambians don't actually have a library. It's a city that doesn't have a library, like a main library. Like nothing there at is all. A, there is a small library that was left by the colonial masters, i.e. England, yeah. which is dilapidated. It's a small maybe 10 by 10 size yeah. library which is dilapidated it has hardly has any books and stuff like that no resources and nothing yeah we tried yeah we tried to partner with the city on that in 2006 they but because interested. of politics they did they signed a memorandum of understanding with us Yeah, but because of the nature of politics there's a new mayor in office every three four years right. who doesn't want to continue the agenda that the predecessor had oh,
2: man. so that
1: created a problem with our private uh, public partnership yeah so we decided the best way to go about this is to actually create our own community libraries run by the community yeah. in the private sector right. that way there are no politics and egos involved yeah so, up until now, we've been doing pop up libraries, yeah, okay. right, with no specific space and home to call our own. Yeah. So, we've just been popping up at shopping centers, different people's homes, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then, COVID hit right in 2019, we couldn't do that, yeah. and we couldn't be COVID safe, yeah. So, we had to put our uh, pop up libraries scheme. On hold for the last 12, 14 months. Right, yeah. And then that's when the Giver Award came, and we said, okay, we need to find a way that we can sustain the library yeah. without being donor dependent yeah. and without being space dependent, or other people's space dependent. Yeah, you need to have, we some need kind to of control. have a permanent home. Yeah. Yes. And so this is why now we've decided it's been incoming. It's been in the works in terms of thinking about it as a vision. Yeah. But I think it has become more urgent now since COVID yeah. to actually have our own space and get on with it.
0: OK. And so, so, so yeah. the, the HML Foundation, you, your, mm-hmm. the, your main focus is libraries. I heard you earlier, you mentioned something about wells and stuff like that. Or is that not part of the kind of? no
1: yeah no no it's not part of our business model but mm. our business model for the hml foundation is founded on the four sdgs uh, uh so the the first one is sdg number four the second one is uh eight then nine and eleven right so that is about education yeah. and providing uh sustainable cities as well as uh equal uh opportunities for work right so within our library, the state of the art library that I'm talking about that we'll be building is that we're going to have a section which helps with um, with training, uh, 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 vocational training right.
2: okay. for people
1: that are out of school that cannot afford higher education, yeah. but they're ready to learn some skills that will get them uh, job ready.
2: Yeah.
1: Then we'll have a section which is for homework assistance. Mm-hmm. We'll have a section which is uh, available for uh, cv development if somebody wants to work in the formal sector okay. so the vocational is the informal sector yeah and then we've got the formal sector where somebody just wants to apply for a job in a nine-to-five position right yeah and then we've got the the fifth but not the last section which is where we just have the community the literacy uh, part of it where we just want the community to become literate. So right. we'll teach them skills like how to use a computer, mm-hmm. how to read your own prescription, yeah. how to, you know, to just understand basic Day-to-day reading, basic stuff. literacy. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, you want to know how to count your money. You want to know how to to read a prescription and mm. the label on your medicine. Yeah. Um, the, the level of illiteracy in Zambia is quite high, as you would have guessed. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's why we want to do that. And then the final thing, we want to have a STEM library. Yeah. So where, you know, kids can learn more skills in science, uh, you know, math and, and all of that. Yeah. Um, there's there's so, a yeah. growing
0: market for um, for tech in Africa. I feel like all the venture capitalists that I speak to and that I know they are always saying, oh yeah, Af- Africa's where it's at. What, what they, they don't even know that many countries in Africa. To them, Africa is like Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. now they're like, oh, there's stuff going on in Gambia, there's stuff going on in Zambia. There's yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of people in Africa that are looking to work. They're intelligent mm-hmm. people. Do you know what I mean? They can learn. Yeah. They can do everything yeah. that we think we've got going on over here in the West that's popping. There's people over mm-hmm. there that are 10 times smarter. And not even mm-hmm. because they have to try harder. It's just because they have different ways of thinking they they see mm-hmm. the world completely differently like I, I feel like the thing is right now where we're at right now is you can access people very easily and, and educate them very easily but it doesn't mean that you know everybody should do the same thing
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and so I feel like what you're providing these people in in your home country is the opportunity to at least have a chance to go do you know what maybe I'm not interested in technology maybe I'm interested in for example PR do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're you're providing with that opportunity because I feel like a lot of people, especially you know African heritage people, oh, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an mm-hmm. architect. It's like, is that really what you want to do? Because there's money to be made all over the place.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that a lot. Even more so, if I could add on to your point, is that you know, ultimately uh, Africans as well in Zambia, uh, in Africa, the whole continent are very donor dependent. They're very dependent on external uh, nonprofit organizations coming in to set up those nonprofits to be able to feed and provide for the locals. Right. My argument is that us that have been given the opportunity to live and work in the diaspora yeah. need to give back, need to go back home and take back our skills and our privileges to build homegrown NGOs, homegrown NPOs, non-profit yeah. organizations that are giving back to our very societies that we came from. hmm And how are we going to do this? And how are we going to make this into a self-sustainable NPO that is not donor dependent, that is not dependent on writing a grant that goes to Washington and gets approved or disapproved? You know, how about creating your own income generating activities that will make sure that your your NPO is self-sustainable? That's one. Number two is that you want to make sure that the my vision is to make sure that this uh, my nonprofit is such that It's, it's uh it's an open book. Okay. It's community led. And so that the community themselves are the ones that are going to decide what their missions are going to be. I have a vision as the visionary, but in terms of the missions, what needs to be achieved first should be decided by the, the community themselves at the grassroots level. Yeah. Because it involves them, yeah, you know, and it affects them
0: exactly. And
1: so this is why that when I do with my agency, I want to make sure that even already as it is, I've already spent ten percent of my salary for the last since two thousand and six going yeah. into. The HML Foundation, it's been self-funded, yes. no donor donations at all. Yeah, And I, I've reached at this level now where I'm saying I want to immortalize that legacy yeah. by up-leveling it, pivoting it into this uh, more permanent uh, legacy that I can build and say, you know, this is where I'm at. When yeah. I retire, I just want to work for that legacy. Yeah. Whilst I'm alive and I still am still able to. Yeah. And and build on to that rather than say, you know, when I'm gone, give whatever I'm left I leave behind to. To my people, like yeah. that's not good enough. And
0: then, and one thing is with charities is where where your whole mission is to build this library and to have the infrastructure there. At least there, it's not like oh, the money's going to an office in London where those people then send a little fraction of that money to do mm-hmm. it. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel like that sometimes with charities, the 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 money you give, such a small percentage of that money actually makes it to helping the cause that Mm -hmm. on your end you feel like you've done a good thing but realistically all you've done is help somebody who lives probably 20 minutes down the road from you yeah pay for their shopping that week or that type of thing do you know what i mean exactly very very exactly i wouldn't want to say it's it's um like dark or anything but it's like people like yourself who are do who are doing these things and doing them self-funded you know Mm -hmm. like cool I'm going to take my, my 10% of my salary. And what I'm doing is I'm going to have mm-hmm. to fly to Zambia. I'm going to have to put myself in a in a hotel or get, yep. do you know what I mean? So that's just one person's expenses. And then you're mm-hmm. going there and you're having big meetings that are making big decisions and, and this, mm-hmm. that, and the third. And that needs to happen more because that is more helpful in my eyes, right? And this is somebody mm-hmm. who's, who's tried to donate money to charity before and then I realized it wasn't really <laughs> working out so well. That that type of stuff actually has more of an impact for you
2: mm-hmm. and for
0: them. And it's like, yes, you may you know have less of an income over here, but it's like the multiples on that money abroad mm-hmm. are fantastic. Like for me yeah. right now, I, I'm half from St. Vincent. And if you know what's going on over there, the volcanoes erupting and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. my mum isn't focused on, oh, I have to send supplies pliers and this, that, and the third. She calls our family out there and it's like, Anything you want, anything you need, let me know, I'll deal with it. And also, you mm-hmm. know, the people around you, the people on the hill, the people that live around, are, mm-hmm. we will deal with that. Because yes, there's a big mission that that's trying to get stuff over there. But the problem yeah. with that is, is, because it's one funneled point, it's become kind of oversubscribed. So there's now food going to waste. There's resources mm-hmm. that aren't making it there. And that's yeah. only because these people have their one access point that they're going through. And if there was more yeah. people like yourself Yes, I'm doing something in Zambia. I'm doing something in mm-hmm. Nigeria. I'm doing something over here. Mm-hmm. I feel like the impact is greater than if you just go mm-hmm. I'm going to give money to water aid because I yeah. don't want people to be thirsty. It's like that's not yeah. the main struggle in Africa right now. That is such a yeah. small small percentage of things. Mhm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I agree. I completely agree with that because micro level uh funding or micro level Nonprofit or whatever you call it is actually more effective yeah. than global um, uh, global uh, nonprofits. And that's not to say that nonprofits don't the global ones don't do what they need to do, but they do it like you said to your point at a global level where it is oversubscribed. Yeah. Again, to your point, and when you do the micro level, you are more in tune with the community at that grassroots level exactly. and the measurement and evaluation is more tangible you can actually see where every penny and where every dollar is being spent yeah but on top of that my vision the way i see it is like don't always think of giving people a uh, fish to eat yeah. and that's what a lot of these big uh, organizations do they give out um they give out uh, Elms, you yeah. know, they 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 give a donation to this to this person and whatever yeah. care packages and so it's all very well and good and it's really appreciated and it's needed. Yeah. But for me, my my argument is that educate the mind first. Exactly. Once you educate the mind, you increase their literacy level. Yeah. You are giving them a fishing rod to be able to fish for themselves yeah. and feed themselves for a lifetime
2: exactly there's a
1: saying in africa that if you want to hide uh anything from an african put it in a book right uh,
0: yeah because I've, they'll I've never read before. it well see ob- want-
2: <laughs> worldwide the
0: saying is just if you want to hide anything from a black man put it in a book Fair enough. I'm like, excuse right. me i read all the time thanks but it, it's just so, a stereotype yeah
1: yeah so if that's the case then I am going to provide, whether it's physical books or digital books, access to every Zambian I can reach, possibly, so that they can be able to access and empower themselves with that knowledge that's being hidden in those books. Because I believe education is the first passport and key to get out of poverty. Most definitely. And, and there's a lot of digital poverty right now. Yeah. There's a lot of internet, uh, uh, what you call imbalances and stuff. like People don't have access to the internet. Yeah. And this is what my libraries are all about. Yeah. Information, techno- Access to information technology and not basic internet that Facebook gives because of their own interest yeah. that people should get on Facebook I am talking about advanced internet access.
0: Yeah, proper internet. This is a me big difference. Have. Do you know what I mean? Yes,
1: they can download. Yeah, they can. You know, they can access. They can study in school. They're doing homework. They can access Google Classroom. Yeah, without any hindrances because they don't have access to uh, data. Yeah, and stuff like that. So they come into this library, and it's also power generated. It's got its own generator. So if the city is in a blackout. A student can still walk into the library. It's a community space. They can still access all of that. Yeah. That's at a fraction of the cost, if any. Yeah. You know, because it will be also because it will be, um, it will be income um, income treated, whatever. I can't remember the terminology. In- uh, means tested. That's yeah. it. So we'll set a bar to say that if your family is earning so much money, then up to a certain amount of money that they're earning, they'll have free access to the library. And from a certain income, then they can pay so much and so much and and so on and so forth so that it's tiered and it's not just serving a certain uh, type of society and it's leaving out the, the rest of them. Because what we want to do is like, everybody has got access and no one is left behind, literally, when it comes to accessing the, the library.
0: No, you're, you're definitely right. Education is something that, you know, has been hidden from all, all different types of people, people in poverty. They, they tend to only go, especially because you only have the capacity to go, I need to eat right now. I need to keep my house today. They don't have the capacity to go, do you know what? If I do this now, five years from now or five months from now, I could have this or I should be able to do that. And Mm -hmm. like you said, it's all about books. At a young age, I was reading books about business. I was reading books Mm -hmm. about entrepreneurship, finance, investment. And yeah, bear in mind, that's not what most kids would do or should do. But even Mm -hmm. as an adult, it's one of those things where I had access to get those books. I could go to Mm -hmm. Waterstones, W.H. Smiths and buy these books. Yep. In Zambia, that's not possible. Yeah. And levelling out the playing field is something that needs to happen across the board, all over the place. Yeah.
1: And then literacy is not just about uh, accessing educational materials which mm. is a good point that you've said and some of uh, our books like right now we've got over three thousand books in stock if um for our pop-up libraries which need proper storage there some of them are just coming to waste now yeah. because they haven't been properly uh um stored mm. but the point that i'm trying to make is that you know literacy is not just access accessing those educational materials mm. which is well and good but it's about I want to create that culture where every child is read to at night, even if they're reading fairy tales, even if they're reading stories, that creates a, a mindset, uh, th- that imagination yeah. stimulates their minds to learn mm. and have an inquiring mind, which prepares them for the time when they'll start doing research to, re- to retain information that will they, they can apply in real life. Take, uh, for example, myself as a child, I didn't have access to reading materials. Yeah. So I, up until I got to the age of about 12, 14, mm-hmm. I started reading novels with yeah. my dad, yeah. right? So we created this personal library between me and my dad. We had like a book club where we exchanged books and then we we even reviewed those books and, and exchanged notes on those books. Yeah. That's how I started the desire, the passion for books. Yeah. And then obviously uh, when my dad passed on when I was 22, and fast forward to now, I, to 2006, I realized I wanted to immortalize that memory of my dad. Yeah. That's why I created the HMO Foundation, by the way. So that the HMO Foundation stands for my dad's names. It's the Henry Morrison Lemula Foundation. Okay. So my point is that if, as children, even now, my 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 daughter and my sister, they've got small kids in their houses, they don't read to those kids. There's not even a single book in any one of their houses. Like I'm saying, this is so wrong. Do you ever read to your kids? So then of course, when I've gone home since after living in the Western world for over 21 years, I go home and try and read a a book to a child. They get all shy and they're like, they get all giddy. You know, like they don't understand the culture of reading a book. And or if you just sit with them on the dining table and give them a book, their attention is so short to reading books, they would rather be watching TV, Disney and stuff like that. Because that culture is not innate. And then the nurturing and the nature of the environments that they've been growing up in has not been put in them. It's not a norm for kids to read. So I want to start early, uh, early training of children to read from the time that, as, as soon as they can read. In fact, from the time a mother is pregnant they should read to their unborn child. And that's what I want to do. I was starting with Zambia. I have the hashtag GetZambiaReading. So that's my passion. And one day I want to be remembered as a person who, crazy person who talked about reading <laughs> as, <laughs> as the thing that will get Zambians out of poverty faster.
0: Here's how to get in touch with Jennifer.
1: So you can find me or you can find more details about what I do at akandbrook.com. And And, uh, you can find out more about the work we're doing for the HML Foundation under the Ignite menu. And of course, I am on social media. My handle on social media is at IamJenNash.
0: Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.